Hey everyone, it's Jonathan. Merry Christmas! Welcome to the final episode in our Christmas Carol mini-series. Today I'm joined by Nikki from Trivial Theater and Dan from TYTD Reviews, and we're talking about a version of the story that's been recommended to me a bunch of times over the last year, Rod Sterling's A Carol for Another Christmas. Both Nikki and Dan had suggested this one to me, so when I decided to cover it for this batch of Christmas Carol versions, I had to have them join me. So I went into this movie completely blind. (laughs) Like I knew it existed because it had been recommended to me like several times over the last year. I think both of you recommended it and you weren't the only ones. So this this actually was the, like I had planned to not do Christmas Carol versions this year because I was in the middle of doing Cinderella versions and I didn't want to stop. But then I was like, well, so many people keep requesting this or recommending it. I was like, I should just do it. And then there's some other ones I want to do. So, but yeah, I went in completely blind and I did not know what I was expecting because I thought this was an episode of the twilight zone. And then Nikki, you set me straight on that because I was looking for it in the twilight zone series. And apparently it's a movie by itself. It was definitely in the same kind of, cause it came out in 64 and, uh, Twilight Zone ended in 63, and it was written by Serling, so 100% understanding why you had that thought. Mm -hmm. I mean, in effect, it is the Twilight Zone movie we never actually got from Serling, um, because it it has all of those, (laughs) yeah, it has all of those kind of tropes, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Even though they're not, even though it's not like official Twilight Zone, if you told me that the Twilight Zone ended with this movie, I'd I'd be not only perfectly okay with it, I'd, I'd, I'd... completely understand because it it seems very much like a a line being drawn under that kind of filmmaking at least from serling i mean i know he came back in the 70s with the night gallery but it's very twilight zone-esque even if it isn't twilight zone oh yes and i will tell you just from a lover of the twilight zone the movie or the the show that we got left with as the very last episode of the twilight zone or at least serling's version of the twilight zone is called the 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 bewitching pool and it is so bad it's such a let like it's not a terrible episode in itself but it is such a letdown for such a fantastic series to go mm. out on this would have been so much better oh, absolutely but- absolutely and <clears throat> the thing that kind of irked me the most when i was doing the research um for for this episode um about this was just how kind of mixed the feedback was for this like obviously the bewitching pool is i i haven't watched it yet but from what you've told me is is going to be a a a poor way to end the show but having watched this and then having seen what the critical response to it was um it it made me quite angry <laughs> all things considered <laughs> But I was just sitting there going, well, well, what do you want? If if you watched this and came away from it going, eh, I, I don't know if I can help you, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think there are, and we'll get more into it, I think there are legitimate criticisms of this. Hmm. Um, you know, it worked, there are, and like I say, we'll talk more about it, but I think there are, um, you know, you could look at it, um, it, it was done in, like, some of the more... Um, heavy-handed Twilight Zone episodes that deal with morality and, and moral codes and messages and such, they can be very, very heavy-handed in their approach and how they do it. And not that this is unnecessarily heavy-handed, but you could look at it and say, eh, you know, there's no subtlety. It's 
you know, this happened, this happened, boom, you know, but I, I think in the spirit of um, uh, the, not that all versions of the Christmas Carol are, you know, the message isn't like the message is generally speaking a bit heavy handed just because of what it is, but it's, there are, there's a variety of subtleties and this isn't subtle at all. (laughs) Nuanced, but not subtle. Right. No, absolutely. And there is a definite difference. So. Absolutely. And I mean, I was fascinated as well, just seeing how this thing got created as well, because, um, you know, looking at, looking at how it all came about, um, it, it kind of brought together a lot of people who had just come off the backs of either very frustrating or very awkward productions, and they'd all kind of been pulled together. Um, I mean, Jonathan, I don't know, have you got anything you'd like to say about the the behind the scenes before I kind of, you know, I don't want to walk over you with this, but just going into detail about it all. Well, the main thing that I thought would be important to mention is that I found out this was commissioned by the United Nations, which I found that out after I watched. I was like, oh, well, that makes sense, <laughs> given what they were talking about in there. <laughs> but I, I, yeah. like I said, I went into this blind. I had no idea. And I think I was expecting something really science fiction-y and less bleak, depressing, anti-nuclear war parable. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I took to nicknaming it Christmas Threads because we had a, um, a a BBC drama over here called Threads in the 80s that was basically like, what would happen if a nuclear bomb hit England? And it's one of the most depressing and bleak things that the BBC has ever produced. So this is basically just the Christmas version of that. Um, but um, no, you, you're absolutely right. It was um, initially produced by the United Nations. What they wanted to try and do was put across the work that the UN did um because they felt that the average american audience didn't quite understand what the un stood for at least at the time um so they set up a non-profit charity called the telson foundation and the idea of of the charity was to subsidize the cost of producing um at the time it was commissioned to do six specials but they only ended up ever making four each one was supposed to be centered around a pillar that the United Nations stood for, um, one of which was obviously de-escalation of nuclear arms and ultimately disarmament. And like I say, from from there on, it really kind of interested me because they managed to get all of these people in who had just come off the back of like bad turns. So, for example, Serling had just come out of the Twilight Zone having had a heck of a time for the last like five seasons just constantly being hit by the studios on what he had to do and being forced to do advertising against his will and having to kind of change the run times and move the show around in the schedules he got messed about quite badly um the director joseph l i always get his last name mispronounced makowitz yes um he had just come off the back of filming cleopatra which had had some some not so great um feedback so he was quoted at the time as saying he was just happy to be in work this was the only television <laughs> thing he ever did um he was also known for all about even the barefoot contessa yeah. but he um he, he got drafted into this and you've got peter sellers who had just come out of hospital after having his near fatal heart attack um he signed on to the production and this was his first thing that he did after that um also managed to pull a very young brit eckland who was married to him at the time um into the production as well 
And they tried to shop it around to various companies to get some extra funding for the charity um, so that they could book the time. And the one of the only co- big companies that could really offer any money was the Xerox Corporation. They, they basically <laughs> said, well, we'll give you $4 million to do this. That's very but, random. <laughs> yeah, very. They, they basically put feelers out to all these companies and Xerox were one of the only ones that came back and said, yeah, we'll do it. Here's $4 million. Enjoy. They must really want nuclear disarmament and excellent uh, photocopying abilities. Uh, <laughs> uh, good on Xerox. <laughs> <laughs> So with that $4 million, it, it mainly bankrolled securing the airtime, and they went to all of the different um, television companies, and a lot of them didn't want to touch it because there was a lot of um, certain groups of people disliked the United Nations because they felt that it was a nanny state kind of situation. They didn't like the idea. They wanted to have, be in control of what their governments did, and they didn't like some outside force telling the government what they should and shouldn't be doing. So a lot of television studios didn't want to touch it because they thought that it might cause controversy. But ABC said, yeah, we'll have it. And they agreed to broadcast, at least in principle, this one, which was the first one. And they obviously did the three more, but they never managed to get the last two made. And yeah, they, they basically, this is one of the few television specials that broadcast completely without commercial breaks, um, because they felt that the subject was so important that they didn't want it to be interrupted every 10 to 15 minutes with like product sponsors and stuff like that, which must have made Serling very, very happy. Um, oh, you know, <laughs> didn't have to shill Oasis cigarettes anymore, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, those showed up on some of the, um, I'm part of a podcast that does Twilight Zone and that's one thing I always bring up. It's like some of the ones where cigarette ads show up on, it's like, there was one that involved a, a kid in particular and it's just like, this episode has been a, all about kids, and yet here's this ad for Chesterfields. It's just like, oh my god! <laughs> basically, basically, it's just it's mad. It really is. Um, but Serling was given the brief of exploring nuclear conflict. Um, obviously, Serling himself um, was a very progressive. Uh, I, I can't speak for him to say he was a socialist, but he had a lot of very socialist principles. Um, he had served in the wars and had had some very traumatic experiences in there. And he came out of the military service wanting to try and explore his trauma through his writing. Um, and this is prevalent through a lot of Twilight Zone stories oh, yeah. and is prevalent here. Um, he he very much makes his views on war and particularly nuclear conflict very well known. I mean, I personally think that some of his best writing comes from when he's when when you can tell the character has basically almost morphed into Serling, just giving a monologue oh, about yeah. his own personal feelings. Well, and look at how look at how like anyone that writes the things you know, like well, they always say write what you know. And to be able to work through those, those things, like uh, whether you're talking about, um, oh, it was first, I'm sorry, I'm, I can't think of what the actual episodes were, but the one that always comes to mind is from the first season. It's probably like five or six episodes in, um, but yeah, that was one of several that Serling wrote for himself, wrote about himself and or his own experience and definitely plays in. Probably not the one with the living doll. No, <laughs> I mean it's possible, but this one specifically, no. <laughs> it was the uh, trouble with Templeton. That was the one. Oh God! Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so like he claimed that his is one of his main inspirations for this was um, 
some of the elements of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was still very a very hot topic, as it only happened a couple of years prior to this happening. Um, he wrote the script and shopped it around, and that was where Sellers came became involved. And um, you know, surprisingly, given that he he'd just come out of hospital and was spending tons of money in medical bills, he actually chose to appear in this for the minimum SAG wage at the time, which was three hundred and fifty dollars. Um, because he thought that the script was so powerful and it was something he so wanted to be involved with. You know, normally he would charge, I think it was something like 150000 or something, some ridiculously wow. high number, but he, he waived it for the base fee because he thought it was really important. Um, and they also managed, and this, this annoyed me a little bit actually when I found this out, they managed to um, get Henry Mancini, famous composer, mm-hmm. to write the incidental music and theme tune for this. Um after the initial broadcast, it got the music stripped out of it, basically, because of some copyright wrangling that went on. Um, and it's only recently been put back in um, when it has recurring broadcasts. So, yeah, it's uh, it's had a time. And all of these people came together over it. And it, it's, it was a nice thing to see, especially given that it's a Christmas-themed film. It had that nice heartwarming vibe of all these people who were down on their luck or had just come off bad turns being drawn together to produce something very human. Oh, yeah. Um, very humanity-focused. But uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself <laughs> too much here. Because <laughs> um, I appreciate I've I've just done quite an info drop, so uh, I, sh- I shall go quiet now and hide in the corner. Thank you. No, that's fine. Your British is showing their, uh, their Dan. <laughs> The backstory is just as interesting as the movie itself, so oh, that's, totally. that's fine. One other interesting thing about this, real quick. Um, so it was aired in 64, and it didn't air again, or wasn't seen again, until um, TCM in 2012, I believe. Yes. It basically got lost in the vault somehow. Um, from what I, I could find, they struck 16mm prints that they sold for educational purposes, to schools so the idea was that you'd, you'd show this as part of like i don't know maybe a history class or a social a sociology class or something like that hmm. but from those 16 millimeter prints bootlegs were ripped which then did sort of trade on the vhs market for a very long time 2012 tcm broadcast it but with all the harry mancini music taken off it and it was only december 2021 that they put all of the music back in Hmm. And yet, yeah, apparently, according to the TCM's website, uh, it's an annual screening now. They they do it every year around December. They they play this. Um, it's also available on HBO Max, um, at least for now. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> that's where I watched it. Nice. I guess well, it'll be Max thing. now because apparently yeah. <laughs> they took off the HBO branding for some reason. <laughs> yeah, the, that's a one of a kind thing right there. <laughs> they uh, never boring. But one thing um, before we get into more of the actual meat and potatoes of the movie, I gotta say. Like one thing with Serling is that about ninety percent of his stuff for through the Twilight Zone at least is kind of timeless. Like the things that applied in the fifties and sixties apply sixty years later. And obviously, humankind and human the ways that we roll they change, but they don't change. Like there's there's variations on a theme. I think that's why I found this so bleak. <laughs> oh no! Given whatever what all's a- going on around the world, I think that's why I found this so bleak myself. <laughs> oh no, and a hundred percent understood. But it is I mean, he had a way there's just Serling just he has such a way of mm. writing just people and humanity and situations and I thought I just was sitting there thinking about it after I got done watching it and it just blows my mind. Cause there's a lot of people that can't do that. And to have that ability is just yeah, it's amazing. 
No, absolutely. I remember, um, I don't know whether you, Triv, had seen this um, prior to our viewing last year of it. No, it was my but, first time. Yeah, no, it was one we we sort of dug out and decided we'd sit and watch it. Um, and by the end of it, we were both kind of just sat in a slightly stunned silence going, how how has nobody bought this? Why, what is going on? This is basically like what's happening now, but you know, it, it, there's a lot of very, very prevalent themes that that carry through to the uh, the modern day, um, especially you know now more so than ever with with all of the various conflicts that are going on and uh, you know uh, certain political groups, um, you know, trying to mobilise various similar restrictions to our main character. It's uh, it's a fascinating watch because it, it it seems now more relevant than ever, and it, it just astounds me that so few people have seen it. Like even the Twilight Zone fans generally don't talk about this, which again just blows my mind. When when again you can consider that this had it been the finale of the Twilight Zone would have been considered a, a high, and if you played it, wouldn't question it being anything other than a Twilight Zone episode. The only thing that's really missing is the Serling introduction. Yeah. You almost did expect that, like, you know, you know, Mr. Daniel Grudge, you know, a man who yeah. has seen war, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, it's you expected him to to pop out at one point and start doing what he did so well. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, and for the purpose of tonight's gathering, I um, chose to watch this as uh, Rod Serling would have intended, um, on YouTube being broken into every eight minutes by adverts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which which was particularly fantastic, and not to jump too far ahead, but there was a wonderful moment where um, Daniel Grudge is talking to the Ghost of Christmas Present, and um, the Ghost of Christmas Present has this very impassioned monologue about how people are gluttonous, and they rely too much on commercial luxury goods, and the time for luxury is over, and we've got to pull together as as humanity, and then it hard cut to like this really bougie advert for ASOS clothing and jewellery that was like really high class <laughs> I just I laughed for a solid like thirty seconds. It was amazing. I just have no. I get a lot of ads for Timu. Is that is that uh, better or worse than bougie? If you're talking about uh, commercial luxuries, uh, that's a hard question. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's just it, it was it's wild, and and the thing as well that blew my mind is it hasn't had any kind of home release at all. Like the streaming service, the showing on Max, is technically like the first time it's been widely commercially available outside of being randomly shown on TCM every year. It's never had a DVD or a Blu-ray. It's never gone on VHS, and um, I find that amazing. Really, when you know you consider you know how interesting a piece of history it is not necessarily just for the topics it's covering or for the people associated with it but just uh, how it takes that christmas carol narrative and kind of reworks it into something a little bit altogether different the the, the kind of key beats are still there vaguely but mm-hmm. it almost deviates into its own path and rhythm as it starts becoming more impassioned about the subjects that it's talking about but yeah no i uh I really, I personally really enjoyed this one. I think it's um, it's a very thought provoking piece. Heavy handed, absolutely. I mean, um, Peter Sellers in a cowboy hat will be, let's say, not exactly <laughs> subtle. Um, 
I actually did see a thing that um like I was looking through reviews of this on IMDb and it said um Dickens meets Orwell meets Doctor Strange Love. And that feels pretty right on. Yeah. Yeah, I could I could see that. I could see that. That's a good one. I like that. I think the thing that really cheesed my biscuit, so to speak. Um <laughs> oh, stop with this British slang. How are we supposed to understand? <laughs> Is that actual British slang or just something you came up with? <laughs> just me making stuff up. It's fine. Probably, somebody's probably said it. Somebody's probably said it. <laughs> it really ritzed my crackers was... Um... That just ghosted my Christmas past. <laughs> was was kind of the, the mixed response that this got when it was broadcast. Um, like, Serling's work, I wouldn't say it was divisive necessarily, but it it could be controversial to certain subsections of the population. What got me wasn't so much that there were strong opinions about it, but there seemed to almost be a lack of opinion about it. Um, Like, if you look at the main critical reviews of it at the time, there was a lot of descriptions of it as being preachy, long-winded, of um, heavy-handed, as as Trev mentioned, is, is another one that it got a lot of flack for. But it was generally received as kind of a, well, that exists. Um, which, when you consider that it's it's essentially like an hour and 25 minutes of a man pouring his heart out about how, you know, we as humanity cannot focus on individualism any longer and the time for group action in order to ensure that humanity continues on as a prosperous race... And that why I mean that was a, in fact that's one angle of this script that I really do enjoy is that it's not so heavy-handed that it's just saying de-escalation now. Mm-hmm. It's actually saying that you know conversations need to be had, there needs to be discussions. It can't just be shouting get rid of the nukes any more than it can be shouted to nuke every country that disagrees with us. Yeah. He, he he discusses it in such a way that makes it feel like. It's got to be a continuous conversation. It's got to be something we keep in check. We as humanity, you, me, Triv, we are all people who are involved in the art of humanity. And we all have to, you know, do our bit for society and civilization by extension to ensure that people are being held to account. People are being kept in check and are having these conversations that are keeping the fighting from breaking out. So to you know read the reviews of it and just see a film critic kind of go, eh, it wasn't for me. <laughs> I just like that's that. What what do you mean it wasn't for you? We've got to you need to explore this a little bit more. You can't just shrug at this. It's it's a very powerful piece, um, <laughs> and it, it also brought to my attention the John Birch Society, which Ooh. I'd never heard of before. Which, unsurprisingly, I don't know if you guys know this, but apparently the right-wing viewers of this special were not too happy about its pro- its anti-nuke message. Oh, I can't imagine they were, why. Yes. They, were, <laughs> they were quite annoyed that Serling decided, uh, decided to write a piece about how we should talk about uh, de-escalation maybe at some point. Um, and the John Birch Society, which apparently, for, me, for anybody who doesn't know, was a... a conservative group of people that ran a spectrum from socially conservative which you know is your sort of people who have right-wing tendencies but aren't like you know actively pursuing those things right the way through to literal neo-nazis um 
they organised a mass letter writing campaign before the film even aired to say, how dare you talk about the UN and nuclear armament <laughs> to try and force the station to pull the film. Um, and a lot of other sort of right-wing reactionaries at the time came out against the film strongly, basically saying things about the film that implied that they hadn't even looked at it, that they'd just basically heard the word film about nuclear de-escalation and immediately went into their bloody hippies routine for <laughs> 25 minutes until, you know, the, they, they were wheeled off to the next kind of convention. As someone who was raised very conservative, that doesn't surprise me at all. That yeah. sounds pretty much exactly <laughs> like what would happen. Don't watch it, get mad, write somebody about it. Oh, absolutely. I, I will. I, w- I did have to laugh. So just looking at the IMDb reviews, because I, I did a little research behind the scenes of things, but it's always the reviews that strike me as interesting, especially on pieces like this, because this can be, like you said, very derisive. On one end of it, it says it's as subtle as a nudist at a Baptist luncheon. <laughs> 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 Which I want to use that in in day to day stuff. I I don't know where I will use it, but I will use it. And on the other end, it says uh, Rod Serling could have never known this, uh, but it's not very often a classic can be revived to direct us with greater relevance to the world we live in today. This is as good as it gets. Nice. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a pretty fair assessment of it. Um, I know that at the time, the Xerox Corporation claimed that they got six thousand letters about the special um and no, they describe what is xerox gonna do about it exactly well <laughs> and, and given given the size of the audiences back then i mean you think about it they only had like your main channels in the grand scheme of all the people that probably watched this six thousand doesn't seem like it would be very many no well they said that apparently of the six thousand letters around about three thousand were very strongly in favor of the film and thought that it was a very unique and interesting look at society and around about three thousand absolutely hated it and threatened to firebomb them so ah, they, so they must have don't done change some... basically basically, yeah. basically um this is I mean, again this is why i found it so bleak things don't change <laughs> no <laughs> they do not um well but i, mean, I think I, in, the, from... in the grand scheme like you talk about the the message and it is bleak there is something to that but it does still come back at the end and you see how grudge looks at things that he can do to change to, I mean, even in small ways, you know, and not to jump ahead, I apologize, but like there is multiple messages and you can kind of go, okay, we, as people decide where we're going. I was going to say as well. I mean, I think a bit of the apathy as well that probably came out of this was, and, and I only really put two and two together when I sat and thought about people's responses to COVID recently. Um, you got to bear in mind when this film came out, nuclear war talk had been like the hot button issue since about 1958. Like, we're going to get nuked basically was like the top story every week for, you know, however long. And I think that by 1964, they'd had, you know, two years of the Cuban Missile Crisis. They'd had, obviously, the Kennedy assassination. They had the Cold War was really bedding in with Russia. And I just think similar to how people today, when COVID dragged on for more than two years, kind of were just like, I don't want this in the news anymore. Get rid of it. We don't, I don't want to hear anything else about it. I'm exhausted with COVID. Just get rid of it. I think that a lot of people by this time were kind of done with nuclear war. And the last mm. thing they wanted on uh, the you know, 
28th of December 1964 was to sit down post-Christmas and watch an hour and a half film about how there's a very likely chance we all won't be here next Christmas. Um, <laughs> and they were just nuclear exhausted more than anything else. Well, in the circles that I'm unfortunately in, there's a lot of people who talk about COVID like in conspiracy ways, and I get exhausted from that. So I can oh, yeah. I can understand not wanting to hear anything about it at all. So I guess I can get, understand from that perspective. Absolutely. And I think too, like, there's that, you know, you're coming off of the Twilight Zone. I think maybe people's expectations because it was written by Sterling at that time. And there was some, at least with the Twilight Zone, there was probably some apathy towards that too, because of the way that things had gone as the Twilight Zone went along and such. And uh, maybe that's part of it too. Yeah, I could see that. I could definitely see that. And I will say, and this is just outside perspective, and I, I know there's always that time thing that has to fill. It did, there was parts where it dragged for me. Like, not that you want to get into everything as quick as possible, but the way that it was, it was very eloquent, but it did have moments where it's like, okay, make your point. (laughs) The beginning felt like it was dragging Uh, for me, but it was like, Mm. okay, when is the Christmas Carol stuff going to (laughs) start? Right. That would be, that would be what I would think. Like it didn't have that. And I guess, you know, the sixties, not that they didn't know how to time things out and Serling certainly knew how to, you know, time things well. But whether it was written in to get more, because you don't know how many people behind the scenes were like, oh, we need to add this. Oh, don't forget that. Oh, and don't forget this other thing. There was that sense that there was a lot front loaded, you know, 10 pounds in a three pound bag kind of a deal. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Like once it got going, it was nonstop. It did what it needed to do. It got you in. It made its point. It showed you these horrors (laughs) on various levels. And then it got out. Absolutely. And you know, that intro was actually originally supposed to be longer still. Oh, serious? Um, yeah, they they actually shot, but they, they removed it before broadcast. There was supposed to be like a prelude to Marley's death, where his dad kind of has oh, like a nice right. conversation with him before he gets sent out to do service. And the kid was Peter Fonda. Like he, he is, yeah. his uh, picture was on the wall, but otherwise he kind of was cut out. You see his ghost briefly. Oh, yeah, you're right. That was another thing that bugged me a little bit, although I kind of understand it. In the opening titles, they don't credit Serling in the main titles. They they list it as Joseph's... Bankowitz. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I kind of understand why they did that, because I assume they didn't want people immediately thinking it was going to be Twilight Zone-esque, um, given it that it's quite a serious topic. I, I imagine they mm-hmm. didn't want, you know, the sort of connotations of talky tina or the gremlin on the wing of the plane um which i think is what i was expecting knowing going in knowing that it was rod sterling oh understood yeah Yeah. and that's the thing though too at twilight zone there were as many of those kind of like the the monster of the week type things as there were those thoughtful very like walking distance or um you know the shelter and things like that it kind of covered both sides but the ones that are honestly truly remembered are those ones that are more monster-esque mm-hmm. hmm. and, I, and i do appreciate as well how unsuspecting that introduction is um you know with it being a, a surling production maybe the expectation would have been something a little bit more surreal um but like for the first as you say, first five, maybe even ten minutes of this, you wouldn't think that it was going to go in the direction it ends up going in. It just kind of plays out almost like a kind of of the time Christmas film 
you know, it it's not got quite that Christmas atmosphere. In fact, I noticed that in the house, in Dan's house, there isn't any Christmas decorations or anything like that up. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, you go from this really snowy Christmassy title sequence to um, inside his house, and and until the more Christmas carol-y elements start up. So you know, the record player playing the song when it's you know been taken off the the player or or seeing the ghost in the window, you could easily you know, just think you were tuning in to some kind of wholesome, you know, uh, loose adaptation of A Christmas Carol that was going to be quite warming and, <laughs> and um, you know, filled with, with Christmas cheer rather than well, what we ended up with, which um, <laughs> you know, probably put you off your turkey, to be honest. But Yeah, there really wasn't a whole lot of Christmas. And then when he starts meeting the ghosts, the when the one introduced himself as the ghost of christmas past it kind of took me back i was like oh we're going with that name this really isn't this really has nothing to do with christmas because <laughs> they're like in the past on yeah. the boat with all the dead bodies and yeah it just didn't feel like christmas so i was i was kind of confused as to why the ghosts were still the ghosts of christmas past present and future i think i suppose it's it's because um they try to establish obviously that these ghosts have come at christmas eve um at least in the opening of the film they do yeah um but yeah it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a a stretch to to sort of attach christmas to them i mean i suppose it's it's a nicer titling than calling them you know the ghost of all of the soldiers that have ever died ever (laughs) or um that would be really (laughs) heavy-handed the ghost of the poor children that had their faces blown off yeah, basically. <laughs> the uh, the ghost of uh, pain, suffering, and putting people in prison camps. Um, <laughs> you know, the ghost of really, 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 really bad things, which is all of them. Yes, which is uh, made shorter by the ghost of R to the eighteenth power bad. <laughs> but. Um... Yeah, no, I, I, it, it's difficult, really, because I, I kind of get what they were doing, but it does kind of lose the Christmassy angle, I feel, as it goes along. I mean, there's there's Christmassy vibes here and there, and, and like I say, I can understand, at least on the script stage, where these elements came from. Mm-hmm. But apart from the kind of opening and, and ending, there isn't really anything too festive in there. Yeah. I mean, everybody looks very cold. That's probably the only... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Ghosts of Christmas Past, they were all dead, so, you know, it makes sense. I, I will say, in the regards to the Christmas thing, and understanding that this is based off of a Christmas carol, do you think that they were aiming more for the idea that this is a year-round thing? This isn't something to just think about at Christmas. Because at least by modern interpretations, you really, you know, you think kindness, goodwill towards men, all that kind of stuff. But the majority of people it comes up at christmas and it's heavy it's heavily said hey do this thing do this thing but the rest of the year you don't really get that and maybe that was the point they didn't want it to go so far into christmas because it's a thing that needs to be talked about all year i could really see that that happening i mean i could i could see the debates roaring between how christmasy to make it because of that mm-hmm. um i mean uh, if it was me personally doing something like this, I would have started it off very Christmassy, very Christmas heavy, and then slowly peeled it away. 
until yeah. by the end it wasn't Christmassy and you kind of got the vibe of, oh, wait, this isn't just something that happens now. It has to be something we continue on past this discussion, um, which actually... And again, I don't want to jump too far ahead when I say this, was one of the things I really, really loved about the ending itself was that it doesn't end in, you know, quote, Scrooge finding the errors of his ways and dancing down the street in his nightshirt, punching mm-hmm. orphans and buying the biggest turkeys in the shop. <laughs> it- Right now, I've got that image in my head. <laughs> Daniel Grudge uh, punches out small children as he runs to find a turkey. <laughs> um, it, it, I like the fact that it does just end kind of solemnly with him sat in the kitchen on Christmas morning with his, his staff, drinking a cup of coffee, thinking about what he's just experienced. And it's not a complete change of mind. He's not sitting there going, I'm completely mm-hmm. convinced. It, it ends in such a way that it makes you feel like he's hit a turning point, but he's got to put the work in to, to yeah. grow as a person. Um, it ended in a way that made sense for this version. If it had gone with the traditional Scrooge goes crazy, happy, joyful, love to all mankind, that would not have made sense for this version. No. No, absolutely. And and I think that was one of the things I, I thought was quite quite endearing about it, because it would have been so easy to have gone down that route. I mean, maybe not punching orphans and buying turkeys, but, you know, <laughs> to kind of set him up to be this joyful soul. It, yeah. it, it kind of instead it, it plays it down. So like he, he invites um, Fred, I guess Fred is nephew. Fred, yes. Yeah, Fred is nephew. Yeah, he invites Fred you know, in for a drink and wishes him a Merry Christmas. And, you know, they start to repair that relationship because in the beginning of the film, obviously there's a lot of struggles. Um, and, you know, it's it's not something where he's like very forgiving and very taking things on. It's just very subtle and played very kind of... Mm-hmm. The end of the film could best be described as it's a start. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, uh, you know, I, I, I liked. I thought it was nice that they didn't get too schmaltzy. Yeah. Well, and you look at the way that the rest of the rest of the movie is laid out. It does kind of take that. It starts not calm per se because you know they are kind of in an argument, but it kind of climaxes big and then it works its way back down to more calm again. You know, and each of the scenarios are they can be described as relatively bombastic. So to kind of bring it back to that point where it's a little more calm is a nice touch. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that was one of the main criticisms, actually, that the the film had was a lot of people got hung up on the beginning ten minutes because they said it felt like a high school debate team arguing about nuclear conflict. Where you got the back and forth mm. between Daniel and Fred about um, the transfer students, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which you know, it, it's. I mean, I quite enjoyed the fact they didn't shy away from making. Dan come across as a totally irredeemable character, <laughs> at least in the opening. You know, he he spouts racist rhetoric. He's, uh, you know, happy to destroy entire continents if it means he doesn't have to get involved. Um, you know, it, it's it's a very heavy-handed opening, but I, I think it really sets his character up as being a thoroughly unlikable person who has to go on this journey. Um which surprisingly, I think some Christmas carols that I've seen kind of either go to one note with it or don't go hard enough. Yeah, I, I've noticed that with different ones I've done. <laughs> you just sort of end up with the Scrooge who's just like utterly irredeemably evil, like comically evil, or 
he's he's a bit too soft and you kind of go well you know why is he getting the three ghost treatment i know people way worse uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. but yeah i think they could have tightened that opening 10 15 minutes up quite quite substantially um and it does i understand that they want to try and set the stage for the nuclear conflict side of things but i i do feel like it could have been handled a little bit better um I did get quite distracted, though, just purely from the gorgeous direction, lighting, and cine of those opening sequences. <laughs> um, oh, they did very well with that. Mm, it, it's it's really nice to see black and white film use absence of light effectively rather than lighting effectively. It's you know it's it's an art in itself to craft light, but being able to craft shadow is yeah. um is a real talent and and there's a lot of shots throughout this where they use the lighting to transition as well into completely yeah. different sort of scenarios i'm thinking mainly of ghost of christmas present with the oh, God, table yeah. in the darkness and then mm. illuminating the people in the encampment it felt very like black box stage to some extent like yes. where you have uh it just kind of gave that whole impression of you don't know what's in the darkness and you know because at that point in time you know you were coming off the mccarthy hearings you were coming off of um uh the missile crisis you know all of these things and i'm sure that a lot of people did feel like they were walking around kind of you know feeling around you know in present times and such yeah yeah no absolutely absolutely i mean you could say that they're in the dark on the issue I've peaked. I'm done now. I'm going goodbye, everybody. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, but there's there is some in, really interesting work in there, and the the long tracking shots that they do, where they they pan down into his house and they go into his living room, and the fire's roaring, but that's like the only light in the room. And um, one of his butlers comes through um, with a with a platter, and it pans around and follows him up the staircase and you know you you then cut to inside uh the room that dan's listening to his record on and it's it's just him silhouetted in the shadows but you can just make out his facial features from again the absence of light rather than the light being there Mm. um it's it's a really really nicely handled piece visually and it was quite easy for me to kind of get lost in just how pretty it looked <laughs> when, when the when the really big messages started coming out in the in the debatey segments but yeah those those transitions are fabulous are really really good stuff for you know especially for television you know yeah well the one thing with Mankiewicz um his brother uh who's Herman Mankiewicz was the director of Citizen Kane so from the perspective of not now that you can judge like one family member by another family member's work, but mm. uh, you know even you look at all about Eve and and pieces like that, they are beautifully shot and you know director of photography handles a good chunk of that, but you've got this director that has a vision and I mean Joseph Mankiewicz definitely knew his stuff. No, absolutely, absolutely, and uh, it it really shows here. I mean, again, considering that this. Really, you know, the fact that this didn't get anywhere near a cinema just astounds me. It really does. The fact that this was shown once and then disappeared for 48 years, barring bootlegs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it'd be a bit like if they'd just played Citizen Kane on PBS once and then, like, it didn't turn up again until the 90s when Ted Turner colorized it. 
<laughs> just be just be like how has this been hiding for however long it's been? <laughs> it's been it did actually get a couple of emmys uh despite the kind of i guess lukewarm response the other thing to consider too at that point in time like tv movies were something that were relatively common and that distinction between what went to theaters and what went to tv so night and day you know no absolutely absolutely and I suppose as well, you know, the the subject of individualism as well, which is is very prominent here, wouldn't really come into its own element until the Thatcher and Reagan years. You know, the the idea of the individual in society, the fact that you are the important person, nobody else matters, it's what you can do for you. You're on your own and you've got to make the best out of your life. Mm-hmm. Um that that kind of stuff in the 60s it it was about but it probably wasn't anywhere near as prominent as you know when you get when you get into things like the Reagan administration and that sort of 80s drive towards uh, economic prosperity over people at all costs i i feel that that might have been a message that fell on deaf ears at the time but probably would have had a better reception further down the line had maybe you know they had repeat screenings in the 70s and 80s or things like that when uh, once these ideologies started to become much more popular well in the 80s was always kind of considered the decade of me in that respect too absolutely absolutely and and you know i mean they could have probably even dust off dusted off peter sellers for another round if they'd have uh, <laughs> You know, got him to put the hat on. Filmed, filmed a special <laughs> intro sequence. But I think uh, that's that's yeah. the thing about this that I found the most bleak was the scene in the future with all the people who are completely self obsessed, like to the point of chanting me. Like I, I if obviously it's very heavy handed and over the top, and that's not exactly how everybody is. But it's kind of I don't know, just like an underlying thing especially I feel like in American culture about everybody wanting focusing on themselves and nobody else. It just felt like too relevant to today. Everybody only caring about themselves to the point of they're going to kill off this other group that just wants to talk. And then they're going to come back and kill off each other because I'm the only one that matters. And yes, it's very it's it's unrealistically over the top, heavy handed, but it still felt too close to reality yeah. and just was the most depressing part for me, I guess. Well, this was one of the things that me and Trev really picked up on when we watched it the first time, because obviously the January sixth riots had only happened a very short time before mm. that. Yeah. So we were both kind of watching that going, Oh, oh, oh no. That what? No. <laughs> <laughs> stunned silence whilst it was playing out just yeah it was um definitely it was interesting yeah it was definitely a thing and i i think and john you can kind of i guess bring more light to this and i mean you've reviewed a ton more of the christmas or the christmas carols than i've seen but i think the majority like from the perspective of it being over the top you know the rendition of what we see in this and the fact that we can see you know, a version of that playing out now. I think you could look at the 60s and say, you know, of hippies or people that are, you know, kind of stepping away from that, the the tradition that um, 
you know, if your parents were, you know, married during the war and, you know, had all the army training and stuff, a lot of the kids of that era were raised in a very, you know, strict household in a certain way. You get out on your own, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s, you're going to go, I can do what I want. I, you know, I have seen the way this rolls and I'm not part of it. And, you know, they go off and do their thing. That individualism could be seen then as much as it could be seen in the 80s with that generation, you know, as much Mm -hmm. now. So that ability to kind of see those things across the board. But that said, I do agree. There is a definite, um, you know, screen pointing towards yourself thing to this generation or, you know, the generations in general right now that just it does. It's scary. No, I think that's a very, very valid point in fairness. And I suppose individualism as a concept evolves and changes with every generation that comes up. I mean, you know, what was individualism to say the millennial generation would probably be strikingly different to, you know, Gen Alpha or, you know, Gen X. I mean, the, the, we used oh, to yeah. have common common grounds and aspirations, you know, up until I would say the 80s, the, the nuclear family dynamic was aspiration. You know, you'd have a nice house, a good, well-paying job, nice car, you'd have a partner, kids, you know, that that kind of thing. And now that there is so much uncertainty in the world, you're seeing those aspirations shift. And especially now that we've moved almost entirely to an online culture, um, we're seeing a lot of you know what would previously have been seen as grossly abject aspirations becoming like most young people's standard aspirations like you know you see people like Mr Beast on YouTube where mm. um he'll just quite happily drop a couple million dollars on something and you know it it's an interesting thing to sit and think what that does to young people's minds in terms of expectations and in terms of what their own individual aspirations should be. Um, There was a real shift about 10 or 15 years ago where somebody asked a load of sort of 10 to 18 year olds what they wanted to be when they grew up, what their sort of aspirations were, what their big plan was. And like 95% of them said, I want to be a YouTube star. I want to be famous on YouTube. And, you know, I'm sure if you went back to like, you know, I don't know, maybe the 50s, you'd probably 50s, 60s, 70s, you might get a handful of kids who'd say, I want to be a movie star or I want to do this or that. But I'm certain you'd probably get a much more dynamic range of, you know, people you know what they want to do with their lives compared to what you know individualistic needs are today oh agreed well that was quite in depth wasn't it (laughs) 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 oh i feel all intelligent i should stop that (laughs) but i mean it's true though in in a way isn't it it's it's kind of it's it's interesting to see how every generation handles its own id, so to speak, how how it handles its own drive. I mean, you know, we get there's a lot of intergenerational squabbling that tends to happen online. You know, you end up with mm. boomers versus Gen X and millennials, or Gen <laughs> Z fighting millennials, or all this. It, it's interesting to see what people's values are across the age ranges and how those kind of shake down to their priorities within life. Like, you know, I mean, I'm sure probably the most common one you guys all know of is um, that period of time where boomers were telling millennials to just stop eating avocado on toast and they could buy a house. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry. But like no, but like this is the thing though, that, that mindset was prevalent in that age range at that time. It was it was a case that they couldn't understand that um a particular age bracket would have any kind of struggle to get a house is because they they never really bothered to check in on house prices or the cost oh, no, of living absolutely. or all of mm-hmm. these other things. So, you know, an it's aspiration a to a... Oh, yeah, sorry, go a, ahead. It's not a thing you have to worry about. It's like if you're someone, and this isn't a great example, but if you're someone that doesn't buy milk because, you know, maybe you're lactose intolerant or you just don't like it or whatever, and someone that has, like, teenagers and buys, say, six gallons a week because their kids go through it, you know, you're not going to understand the ins and outs of what that entails. It's like, well, just buy what you need. And to not understand that, they've been out of that loop in for so long, or that, you know, they're so well established that they don't have to worry about that aspect. I mean, the the that lack of understanding and just kind of going off the cuff without having that in-depth understanding of what's going on, it does make a difference. And even more so than that, um, I had to laugh. I was with a group of people and there was a couple of people that were, I don't know, like mid sixties and they were still referring to people that are say 18, 19 now as millennials. It's like, no, you're you're like a generation and a half removed from that. (laughs) Yeah. It's like that all encompassing tone doesn't work, but you know, if you're not in it, if you don't have people in that area, you're not going to outrightly think of it off, you know, the, the, at first. Mm Mm-hmm. That being said, I can say I'm guilty of constantly thinking the 90s was 30 years ago. No, the 70s were 30 years ago. <laughs> That's because, you know, you have the the mental age of, you know, like a 60-year-old, so. Yeah, I have to take my vitamins, otherwise my back hurts. Um. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, the Simpson thing about old men yelling at the sky applies to you, right? <laughs> Basically, pretty much. And it- <laughs> But it's it's interesting to see how these um, portrayals come round as easily as they do. I mean, you could you could quite easily remake this film now and have it be, you know, I don't know. Let's say some kind of MAGA esque, you know, let's just bomb every country that disagrees with us. Type having a meaningful conversation with their slightly more open minded nephew. And mm. you could run this thing more or less beat for beat, maybe tone down the Peter Sellers bit, but you know, you could, you could... <laughs> no, tone that up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll uh, we'll make it hyper colorful. Yeah, that that will be great. We'll, we'll make that work. Um, but it, it's I I don't think you would have to do a lot to this to freshen it up, so to speak. I mean, you could maybe. I mean, one of the things I think that works so well for it is that it doesn't reference too many things from the time um yeah that's why it felt it felt like it something that could have been made today except it was black and white oh yeah it just felt completely relevant to everything today well and and like a lot of like twilight zone stuff you know there's only two or three episodes that are specific to the time like um there's this one that references this this car this car guy that can't lie and they like Nick or Nikolai Khrushchev shows up at the end and buys a car for some reason or another. But the rest of the Twilight Zone episodes, generally speaking, unless it's like a Western, you know, it takes place anytime. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the amazing thing about the series. It's timeless. And the same thing happens here, especially with the ghost of Christmas past. He kind of goes, 
well, you know, this is um, this is Crimea, this is World War One, this is Korea, this is Viet. You know, it, it could be any war at any time because even though the weapons might change, the impact of war doesn't change. Yeah, and he was so good at that. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. It, it's a quality that he he really really used well, especially you know as as time went on, it, it kind of evolved and morphed as he grew older. Um, it would have been very interesting to see how his writing would have evolved, you know, past when he passed. Like I would have been very curious to see how Serling would have handled like the nineteen eighties, given what he wrote here. You know, I, I could hardly see him being thrilled with um with developments i just imagine him coming out he's got the you know the 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 suit that you always knew him for but it his like the shirt that looks white is actually like neon green yes. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a chocolate lime <laughs> there you go <laughs> oh my god those are quite good no. by the way Oh, I'll have to send you some more. Yay. <laughs> For reference, a chocolate lime is like a hard candy. It's lime on the outside, and then there's like a little, like, chocolate, like kind of a blow pop. Yeah. Mm, okay. It's got chocolate on the inside then, so. The closest thing I feel like I've had was years ago, I had a Halloween candy that was wrapped to look like an eyeball, and you open it, it was chocolate, and then you bite it, and it was like sour green goo inside. It was one of the grossest candies I've ever eaten. <laughs> this is not gross. So uh, I... <laughs> I also I wanted to say as well, the dialogue in this thing is is just fantastic. There's some really, really quotable pieces. One of the ones that really stuck with me was near the, the end when he's talking to his nephew, Fred. And he says, uh, no man is an island. Every man's death diminishes me. We find ourselves living in a world where we greet the morning or accept the night. Mm. I thought that's a and that's a wonderful, that's, and it's so like you could look at any time period and have that, but just the like the, all the school shootings and stuff. It just it, that encompasses that right there. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's just it's such. It comes from a place, and I've said this multiple times across the show, but it just comes from such a a place of passion. Like it's 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 so wonderful to see a writer so engaged in his work and i know that he had traumatic ties to what he's writing about here um but it, it puts across such a, a beautiful if not very bleak but but beautifully sculpted message ultimately in terms of what he's trying to put across and i think um some aspects of the time it was produced do date it a little bit um, but that's more down to television productions and budgets than anything else. Yeah, you know, I I think that, uh, that some of the dialogue that he wrote for this piece is um, is really quite fantastic. Yeah, most of this is timeless. It it you can tell it's dated watching it, but just from a story perspective and the messages, it's timeless. Mm. And some of the the best lines are funnily enough come from that um moment where he's on the ship with the ghost of christmas past i for the, for the notes i made for for tonight's recording i um i just started basically transcribing it at one point because it was <laughs> it was so good there's the a moment where um 
Dan's like saying, oh, well, our boys, they're usually okay. And the ghost of Christmas past turns around and goes, oh, which ones are yours? Can you pick them out to this big stack of boxes? Mm. <laughs> it's just like, oh, that's, that's something else. And then um, there's a wonderful bit where he uh, describes um, the disease of war. And the only way to fight the disease of war is to talk. The moment the talking stops, the fighting begins. And then we bleed. Yeah. Then we got problems. And it's mm. just, it's... It's said so so bitterly, you know. It, it's. I think that's another thing though that really sells it is the the conviction of the cast. Um, oh yeah. Because I think with a lesser cast, this would have been a bit hokey and a bit cringy in places, maybe even a bit cheesy. Um, yeah. But because they've got people who so sincerely believe in the messaging of this, and they're so. Um, switched on and engaged with the piece and and want to do their best for it, you, you really get some fantastic performances. I, I mean, all of the ghosts, barring the slightly spooky end ghost, who, um, I don't know, he just reminded me of something from like a 50s, <laughs> 50s B-movie poverty row picture. Oh, um, uh, that was Robert Shaw that was doing the the thing with um peter sellers he reminded me and i i i apologize uh twilight zone is something that it's because of the podcast it, it's something that i'm you know you, you kind of have at the front of your mind but he reminds me of that there's a an episode called the howling man where this guy basically keeps satan in the basement um under lock and key at this like very very remote monastery and the the main or the main brother that's there reminds me a lot of the ghost of christmas future he just like the way he looks the garb the the way he speaks it's very reminiscent of that yeah no completely agree that that i didn't actually put that connection together that's a good uh good shout there actually because that they do have very similar styles and vibes that episode has got a very gothic kind of low lit quality to it as well which um really comes in Uh, is it the robert shaw I think so. Um, As in the Jaws, me, the Jaws Robert Shaw. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I looked him up because I was going through trying to see if I knew anybody from somewhere, and I looked him up. I was like, wait, he was Quint in Jaws? Yep. <laughs> he also had Eva Marie Saint, who was um, in quite a few Hitchcock pieces, too, like uh, The Birds. Oh, yes. She yes. was the... Um... Uh, maybe that's why I thought I felt I recognized her. I, yep. I glanced over IMDb. I didn't... Nothing popped out of me except for Martha Kent in the 2006 Superman Returns. But that wouldn't <laughs> have been why I recognized her, because she would have been much older by, by that point. I think she's still kicking, I, I think. Yeah, she's still alive. Yeah. But yeah, she was, I mean, beautiful at the time. And still is, so... But yeah, when you talk about an all-star cast of this, I mean, they they didn't screw around. They had all kinds of great talent. Pat ha- Pat Higgle uh, was in it. I just I can't remember what he was from. Uh, <laughs> uh, when I looked him up, the first thing that jumped out at me was the narrator for The Land Before Time. <laughs> 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 and then he was also the general in Muppets from Space. <laughs> He also pulled uh, Hang Him High, and he was Commissioner Gordon in the first two Batman movies. I think he was in more than two, because I I still need to watch all the 80s and 90s Batman movies, but I noticed more than two in his his IMDb. I don't remember which ones, but I think it was more than two. Let's see here. Could he have done the animated series? I don't don't think think so. So he did the original Batman movies with uh, Tim Burton. 
He did Batman Returns. He did Batman. Oh, he did do Batman Forever. And he did Batman and Robin. So he was Commissioner Gordon in all four of those. How did we get this far in and not discuss Hiroshima? (laughs) (laughs) We've kind of been all over the place. Real real quick. He was also in Maximum Overdrive. (laughs) Just wanted to make sure that was known. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going through my notes and, and looking through, and I was like, oh, yeah, there's that bit where they go to Hiroshima and they've got those two kids who are like horribly burnt under a towel singing. Um, I did mention the faceless kids at one point, but yes. I understand that's easy to pass over. Yeah. I mean, a, a very eerie sequence, just, just generally mm-hmm. speaking. Um, and again, really top dialogue. Um, you know, the the my favorite line from it was uh and this is a very surling line as well. They cleared up the dead real quick. They only left the silence. Oh god, that mm. is a good line. Yeah. Just so powerful. And it's um it's nice as well to see Dan be confronted with himself almost, because obviously, you know, it's set twenty years prior to when this takes place. And you kind of see that beginning of his sort of turn towards a more inhumane standpoint where you know he realizes that he can't help everybody who's here um and he has that argument over nuclear disarmament then and his argument is basically if they hadn't dropped the bomb here and now um there'd be two million americans dead and however many more people in japan would be dead as well so this this was the full stop that was needed and that's why it needed to happen well, and I, I'm sure, and and not having anyone that was directly associated in that way with uh, World War II, I think that was quite the the reasoning for it. It's like mm. stop it now, stop it hard, let it not happen again, kind of a deal. Yeah, that's oh, usually yeah. Was... the reasoning for most true preventative war actions. Very true. Mm. And it was a nice aspect, I thought, to his character as well, because, I mean, again, it would have been so easy to just make him, like, the baddie and just have him just say awful things all the way through and then give him a big redemption arc in the finale. I like the fact that they do give him some points that did have a kind of ethical foothold at the time. Mm-hmm. There was there was more nuance and depth to him in terms of just... he wasn't He wasn't there just purely to be awful to everybody he he did have points that were being genuinely held up as valid and considered viewpoints at the time not necessarily ones i agree with but right you know they 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 had evidence to back why the decisions that were made were made and things like that and it was i think if you were to go you know that there are some things you can go bombastic on you know look at any b movie out of the 50s and 60s but with something like this that they wanted to make a point on that needed to be able to get through the biases that people even then had to make it that over the top, you would have lost half your audience right then and there. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think another thing as well that, that sprung out to me when they were discussing this particular scene is I, I started to think to myself, how come there is almost a disconnect now between nuclear talk and nuclear talk back then so like back then everybody was kind of 
Well, I say everybody, a vast majority of people were united on the idea that nuclear bombs at worst should only be used as a very last resort. There wasn't, there was a very, very small minority of people who were like, no, let the nukes fly now. Let's just get rid of everybody because USA is great. Um, it was widely agreed that these were very dangerous weapons and we needed to regulate them and have discussions on how not to use them rather than conversations on how to use them. And Looking at modern discourse around it, there feels almost like a disconnect from that. Now people don't really seem to understand the true deadly nature of nuclear armament and nuclear weapons and the apocalypse, effectively, because if if the nukes start flying, it's basically the end for pretty much everybody, the end of, of civilization as we know it, uh, not to get too bleak. Right. Um, but... I, I sort of racked my brains for thinking of how or why that disconnect has happened now. And I think one of the main reasons why there are people out there who don't know the true dangers of nuclear war now is simply because we don't have people alive anymore, really, who were there to live through it the first time. The average kind of... There's very, very few people who survived through things like Hiroshima um, and most of the people who were of an age where they could appreciate what has happened are now terrifically old, if there are any really left. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, you still have people who were kids when when that happened. But, but like, say, for example, your average 20 to 30-year-old in 1945, 44, 45, just, just isn't really around anymore. So you don't have that first-hand account of how awful these weapons really are you only have the data and i mean mm-hmm. you can look at documentaries but that's kind of a step removed from having someone sat in the same room as you going oh yeah i remember when that happened and you know being able to recount in graphic detail um what they witnessed as a result of these attacks and and you know the 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 reason why it should never happen again um and i think that just makes people a little bit more complacent and kind of opens the doorway to people who don't exactly know what they're getting into, such as certain former presidents, getting a little too comfy with the idea of wanting to get the nuclear codes up and running just to sort of threatening big chunks of the world to do what they want. Mm -hmm. I would also think that it's like anything, you know, when you're a kid and you burn your hand on a stove, that muscle memory and all of that, it sticks with you. But then you become an adult and it becomes more distant and, you know, that, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, life pre-vaccines or nuclear arms or whatever it might be, I think it's easy for folks to, well, I mean, you said it, you kind of get complacent with the dangers that some things do provide. You know, if you don't go out camping for 20 years, you're like, oh, yeah, I was fine with mosquitoes when I was, you know, in my teens. I'll be good now. You come back and you're, you know, head to toe bitten to death <laughs> for whatever reason. You know, you need those reminders. Not that you want you know, nuclear alarms to come up every, you know, two months or whatever. But I, it, like you say, it is a com- matter of complacency. It's also just a matter of there's so much else going on in the world that it's super easy to lose track of some of those things. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, there's other aspects as well. Like, for example, um, you know, the the reveals of the uh, the death camps during the Ghost of Christmas Present. I mean, we we still have concentration camps in the US and the UK. We have places where these people are basically being stored to be processed um you know in the us it's the mexican border camps that they've set up to 
process people coming into the country. In the UK, we have Bibby Stockholm, which is the um, this like cruise ship that's basically been repurposed into a holding cell for people who come into the country um, while they're being processed to sort of seek visas. And again, you just you sit there and think, well, why hasn't anybody <laughs> taken a look at these situations and gone, hang on a minute, didn't we do this a very long time ago and had very, very horrible consequences from it? Why why are we supporting this now? Why is this happening now? You know, you could also say that it's a matter of like, oh, well, we're different than what we were then. <laughs> you know, it's not the same thing. It's or people go, oh, well, you know, it's. You know, it, it worked for our fathers, it worked for our grandfathers, it worked for our great grandfathers, so it works for us. It's not it's not right, but what can you do? It's the best we've got. Well, it probably also comes down to like his mindset in the beginning, like he d- he doesn't want to see it. So Exactly. They'd rather it be happening somewhere else where they don't have to deal with it. And that is the crux of all of it right there. Yeah. It's basically it's Chinatown. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> this was a cheery Christmas special, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, do we have some higher note to end this on than what we've been on right now? <laughs> I mean, I think if you can, it's like, okay, if you want to take a, a of the time, well, not of the time example, but Citizen Kane, at the time it came out, it was panned horribly. But over the course of time, it has become one of the best, if not the best renowned movie of all time now you can look at that and you can agree with it you cannot agree with it and there's a lot of people that are on both sides of that argument but it took time for it to be understood and appreciated and i think that you could say the same thing about this you know it's it's a it's a universal message it applies now as much as it did then um you know sterling behind it you know was incredible the way that it's shot, the the acting talent, all of that stuff, with time, it can be more appreciated. The fact that it's shown on TCM, the fact that it's on you know, Max, helps it to get more traction and more eyes. Mm-hmm. Not that that talks about the story itself as being like a more positive spin, but from the perspective of the behind the scenes, it's not locked away in a vault someplace. It's never going to see the light of day. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, I I know that we've spoken about how bleak and how depressing this this film is, and for the majority of the runtime, it is a very bleak and depressing and frank look at world events. But I think ultimately it does end on a positive or something approaching a positive. It ends expressing the idea that there is still hope, that there is still time, and that if even the most stuck in his ways racist anti-communist you know america for the americans style bigot can not change overnight but you know turn a corner at least um there's hope for the rest of us um you know the film across the runtime explores a lot of socialist principles um a lot of stuff that I personally try to aspire to in in you know regular day to day life, and I think that the end of the film could be viewed in two ways. One is that it could be viewed as a kind of you know uh, forever climbing the stairs of change type thing that does look a little bit bleak, but I do think that it also ends on 
the flicker of change being possible and that it just takes time and talking and understanding to eventually reach these people and that we as a collective need to come together to improve society and culture and the world through our own day-to-day actions rather than relying on our governments to do these things on our behalf or through individual actions. I think that it's a bleak film, but I do think it ends with a very hopeful, if not necessarily positive, message. And there you have it. We'll try to look at it from that perspective. (laughs) 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 I think I'm too focused on the fact that nothing changed since then, but you do have a good point. Well, and and John, you know, we've kind of gabbed on, but having seen it and the discussion that's taken place, what are your kind of thoughts? I mean, I liked it as a good film, but like I said, I found it very bleak and I was kind of depressed by the end of it. And I, I think definitely like, and you guys kind of talked about it before, but the way that this doesn't follow, you know, grudge running down the street, yelling Merry Christmas and punching small children in the face with, you know, Christmas spirit. Um <laughs> Sorry, I can't get that image out of my head now. Um, you know, it works for, uh, you know, like the 18th century aspects and even like, you know, something like Scrooge, you know, where there is a definite like, you know, joyful type of a tone to bring this particular film to a place where it ends and he's all like, you know, holly jolly and, you know, tossing his nephew over his shoulder and singing while well, he's a jolly good fellow probably wouldn't be the tone that you'd want to take for this. The tone matches mm-hmm. the movie. Yeah. And it's building that possibility of things to come, you know, that ideally speaking, if you want to be realistic about it, that would be the route that you would probably take. You know, you would you would consider what you had been through and, you know, think in depth about it and what can you do to change and all the rest. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, you know, Serling, if nothing else, was a very pragmatic individual in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I mean, I usually, when it comes to charting my own thoughts on a film, I normally take into consideration how long a film stays with me after I've watched it. And the last time I saw this, uh, which was with yourself, Triv, um, it it stayed with me for a, a good few weeks after after the credits rolled. It, it in part because of what it was trying to do and how relevant it was to the modern day, but also in part for just how few people had seen it. I mean, I I looked on um, Letterboxd at the time, and this was a year or two ago, and it was like triple digits. It wasn't even in the thousands of people who'd rated or seen this. It was for for a work that shows what it shows to have so little viewership. Um, it it stayed with me. I, I spent a good week or two just occasionally popping back into that film just to, whether it was the visuals and how striking they were or whether it was just lines of dialogue or things like that, it, it just kept coming back, which I take to mean that it did something right because, you know, if it had been forgettable, we probably wouldn't be here talking about it now. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Well, I guess that's probably a good place to end this one. <laughs> Yay! Hey, Merry Christmas to all <laughs> and to all a good night. <laughs> go turn up the go turn up the music. Um have a drink with your butler and your cook and uh contemplate life and work towards something better. Yeah. 
Definitely. Okay, well, I guess that will be all for this episode. Do you guys want to let people know where they can find you if they want more from you, Dan? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, I am a- available on uh, TYTD Reviews on YouTube. Uh, we've just come off the back of a bit of a hiatus. Uh, there should be some new videos coming in January. Um, we're going to be back in full force with reviews. Uh, also available on Twitter or X or whatever it's called now um, under TYTD Reviews as well. I'll call it Twitter until I die. <laughs> 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 it's twitter it is twitter yes <laughs> um but i'm available there under tytd reviews and if you um, like reading i'm on letterboxd as well hooray hey dan how do you pronounce the director's last name uh i'm gonna say you drat you've you've foiled me with my my partial dyslexia how dare you <laughs> i'm sorry i couldn't but uh, thank you so much for having me on, by the way, as well, Jonathan. It's, it's always a delight to uh, get together with you guys and, and chat movies. Uh, let's next time. Can we let's do let we, we're going to do Gremlins too at some point, weren't we? Yes, we, we <laughs> try and get to that sooner rather than later. Something a smidge lighter. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What about you, Nikki? Where can we find you? Uh, you can find me here on YouTube at Trivial Theater. Um, I don't have any Joseph L. Mankiewicz movies. Um, I like that. (laughs) But uh, I do a wide variety of random, obscure, and straight-up-bed movies. Uh, By the time this airs, hopefully I'll have some Christmas content out or Christmas-adjacent content. Um, I have no idea at this point what's going to be up, but you can stop by and you'll always find something kind of unique. So uh, definitely stop by and say hello. Okay, well, thank you guys for joining me. Despite the grim bleak film i had a good time talking about it so (laughs) and john we love you to death man it's always a pleasure to talk with you yeah absolutely it's always fun to talk even if even about bleak things (laughs) (laughs) okay well we'll see you next year mangowitz Thanks for listening to Every Version Ever. If you like what you've heard, make sure to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform or to our YouTube channel. Make sure to follow my co-hosts as well, and if you want more content from us, check out one of the other podcasts in the iHeartMovies Podcast Network, or check out my brand new Patreon. My link tree, as well as any other relevant links, will be in the description. We'll be back soon with another brand new episode, so thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.